Welcome to Bitcoin Macro, a pop-up podcast produced as part of the Coindesk Invest New York conference in November. I'm your host, Nolan Bowerly. Both the podcast and the event explore the intersection of Bitcoin and the global macro economy with perspectives from some of the leading thinkers in finance, crypto, and beyond. I'm here with Nick Carter, the founder of the data site Coinmetrics, a VC with Castle Island Ventures, a founder of that firm, and who was also Abby Johnson's personal advisor on Bitcoin for quite a <laughs> while before he uh, stepped out into the entrepreneurial game. So everyone in the industry knows you, Nick, so I'm not going to spend too, too much time on your background other than that. This series of podcasts that Coindesk is running in its lead up to Consensus Invest in November seeks to bring some of our speakers together to answer a few questions about Bitcoin in the world today. These questions are really focused around its behavior on the global scene and in the global economy. And Nick, who has been working at this stuff for quite a while now, is one of the best people we could possibly get to participate in this podcast. So I'll jump right in with the first question, Nick. Is Bitcoin a macro asset? Well, uh, first of all, thanks for having me on the show, Nolan. I uh, really appreciate that. On on the macro asset front, I guess it really depends on your definition of, uh, of sort of a global macro asset. You know, to the extent that uh, global macro is, you know, a strategy that involves kind of forecasting geopolitical trends and trading on that basis, I would say, you know, absolutely. Like some people would try and say, well, Bitcoin isn't big enough to be considered eligible to be a macro asset, which I think is a little silly. Like if you look at the, there's a really great set of data compiled by the guys over at Crypto Voices and they try and measure Bitcoin against other base monies, you know, not against m3 or m2 but against you know just the base money mm -hmm. and they find that it's something like the 11th largest compared to sovereign currencies and gold and silver by their measure bitcoin is the 11th largest uh, kind of base money in the world so i would say you know it's it's absolutely uh something of significance you know even in its in its relatively small state and uh i think it it totally you know, it's it's buffeted by sort of political wins. And it's also potentially, you know, its emergence is also a response to some things that are going on in the world with central banks. So it, while it, it doesn't really have any meaningful correlation to really any other financial assets out there, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I would say it's totally uh, a macro asset. You know, if I was to sort of translate what you're saying, from my point of view, you can really swap out the words macroeconomics for politics. I mean, they're 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 quite similar. We're really right. talking about the politics, right? And and there's no doubt that Bitcoin is political, for sure. Which I suppose de facto raises it up to the level of being a macro asset because that's the whole point. It sort of always had political goals, but sovereigns haven't really cared about it until now. So, <laughs> if anything, that's the. The interesting thing about the year 2019, maybe the emergence of Libra as well really piqued the interest of a lot of central banks. And they started to realize that, that cryptocurrencies and non-sovereign currencies were actually a meaningful trend and, and we're not going to go away anytime soon. And, and, and bringing us back to the world of private issuance of money uh, that was so prevalent before the Federal Reserve uh, in, in 1912 and, and was really common in the United States for, for 100 years before that. 
Absolutely. Yeah. You know, private money is and was the historical default. Mm -hmm. And it's only been a relatively short period of time that we've been on this latest uh, kind of uh, monetary regime. So you could say mm -hmm. this is actually kind of a reversion to the mean. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So with all of this, I guess you could say uncertainty, we've seen Bitcoin behave in certain ways. So, you know, we can define it as a macro asset fine because of, of, of what's around it, but its behavior really, you know, would push it into the threshold of whether or not it's a, a safe haven asset. From its behavior, have you seen it behave as a safe haven asset, given all of the sort of turbulations we're seeing today? Safe uh, is probably in the eye of the beholder or the mm -hmm. eye of the holder, I guess, to make a labored pun. <laughs> so assets I would consider traditional safe haven, so like treasuries, maybe gold, uh, maybe the Swiss franc, uh, actual cash, you know, the dollar. Mm -hmm. Most of those things are pretty stable. Bitcoin's realized volatility is many multiples of the most volatile of all of those, which is gold. So it just from a data perspective, it's probably not behaving in purchasing power terms like the other traditional safe haven assets. So my official answer on that is we don't have enough data yet. You know, Bitcoin's only really been financialized for a couple of years. Uh, insufficient data for a meaningful answer. Safe, safe haven to those who have no other recourse, I suppose. Yeah, so that that's that was going to be the second part. If you are fleeing a a country with just the clothes on your back and you want to take your savings with you, Bitcoin is an excellent kind of safe haven. You know, and and you're happy to tolerate some of that exchange risk for the duration of the period, in exchange for being able to store your savings. Uh, in a 12-word phrase in your brain. Mm -hmm. From that perspective, it's a great safe haven. But for a global macro allocator that cares about correlations and volatility, maybe it's not as good, but you know, it's, it's a lot of things to different people. It's kind of a heterogeneous asset. We've we've seen, I guess you could say, rumors of a of a real recession coming to America. We'll see if it actually plays out. But of course, Bitcoin was predicted by a lot of people within the Bitcoin world to be a hedge against that. Do you think that Bitcoin can behave in such a way given conditions around a recession? Or do you think it could, could start mimicking other assets in that environment? It's definitely hard to know. Uh, my intuition is that as it gets more integrated into financial markets, it'll eventually come to be more correlated to traditional financial assets. Right now, realized correlations are still pretty close to zero, although there has been some indications over the last 6-12 months that it's co-moving with gold to some small degree. You know, Bitcoin is not at its terminal stage of growth yet, it's still, I would say, fairly early in its life cycle. So uh, it ha you know, it's just growing endogenously, and it'll continue to do so, in my opinion. Uh, so the, you know, the real price drivers are almost to some degree internal. What I'm trying to say really is that I think the main things that cause Bitcoin's price to grow are very much a function of uh, you know, its stage of development mm -hmm. and the various thresholds it's hitting in terms of growth and infrastructure, you know, adoption. 
you know, I don't think its price is really going to be driven much by macro factors, you know, for a while. Whether it will outperform in a recession is very hard to know. Some people have talked about an inflationary versus deflationary recession, and it sort of depends what kind we get. You know, it, it's plausible to me that the U.S. just uh, undergoes kind of a Japanification mm. whereby you have extremely loose monetary policy, you know, e- even looser than we have today mm. in an effort to kind of stave off a- any uh, downturn whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, where the stock market turns into a political utility, if mm-hmm. it hasn't already. And we just have a, a, an extended period of stagnation. You know, that that may well be the case. I know everyone's expecting a recession right now. Which makes me think, you know, maybe we're not going to get a classic recession. I, I sort of fallen into this uh, speculative point in this podcast twice in a row now. Uh, but I've always been of the mind that that the Satoshi Nakamoto pseudonym was really to have a, the type of experience or authority to say, "Look what happened in Japan in the 1990s." And if you go back to the context of 2008 and and what was going on then you know, sort of a finger wag to say, look, it's, it's now here. You, you've, you've, you've copied those exact conditions and you are now be perpetually stuck with a broken monetary policy lever and you can't pull it on it anymore. And so you're going to have to print money and you're going to have to do, you know, along the lines of what you just mentioned, a Japanification of your economy. Is that what you've seen over the last 10 years? Is that, is that where you see things continuing to go? I would be shocked if, uh, if if the Fed did anything other than continue on its current trajectory, mm-hmm. uh, which which does sort of indicate that we would be going for more an ab- abenomics uh, Japanese approach to uh, you know a demographic uh, uh, slowdown mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. just the end of the high growth era. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, it's really funny though. I haven't heard that uh, that theory for the the Satoshi uh, pseudonym before. It's it's pretty good though. <laughs> Yeah, I remember reading it somewhere, honestly, in 2012 or 2013, and I have never been able to find the source. But it's, you know, maybe I dreamt it. I don't know where I got it from. But I have been operating under that assumption since 2012. So um, (laughs) maybe I'm crazy. I don't know. I like the Japan case study, though, because it's always a good rebuttal to the people that claim that the the stock market always goes up in real terms. Yeah. You know, there's this real cult of of passive uh, investing with the idea that the stock market will just reliably return 8% nominal, you know, 6% mm-hmm. real every year in perpetuity. I think that's asinine. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the Nikkei, I think it peaked in something like 1985, maybe, and you just about broke even, you know, not too long ago, if you'd held the Nikkei from 85 to present, um, yeah. you know, which is a great rebuttal to this notion that, you know, growth is permanent. And, uh, and and the stock market always goes up. And there, there are some pretty troubling qualities of the, let's say, traders and investors using the Nikkei. Uh, it's, it's not as deep as it once was, that's for sure. And the, the, the BOJ owns like a significant like, fraction uh, yeah. as well, which yeah. is like, yeah. seems to be a total distortion of the market. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. To make sure it keeps, it keeps uh, rising. Yeah, it's markets as political utilities. So Nick, you, you've had the pleasure uh, and I think the good opportunity uh, earlier in your career to spend a lot of time with, I guess, what we consider, you know, real Wall Street players. Really, uh, the mainstream financial world was kind of where you got your, your start in this, definitely working on, on cryptocurrencies, but within that environment uh, at your time at Fidelity. And I'm wondering now in your position with the VC that you founded, 
if you still are able to gather the narrative that the mainstream financial world uh, has around Bitcoin, and if you've noticed any change in the last six months? I think uh, Fidelity was, was probably a special case in that they were very heterodox in their thinking uh, relative to the, the kind of traditional Wall Street firms. I was very, very lucky to start my career there or you know my second career maybe or my, my financial career there. They were already primed to be uh, super open-minded to, to cryptocurrency when I joined because uh, they'd spent several years starting in 2014 educating themselves on on the industry on bitcoin and and to some degree i think all of the big firms all the big financial firms that engage with this stuff need to go through that fairly long cycle of learning before they're ready to sort of productively engage and whilst they're still in the midst of that you see things like these permission blockchain initiatives which don't seem you know particularly interesting to me at least so my experience is a little bit colored by having been dropped into that already very open-minded environment. But, um, you know, I, I, I try and keep my finger on the pulse and, and talk to my, uh, you know, my friends that work at hedge funds, you know, you know, traditional allocators. I will say there's been a bit more openness to cryptocurrency as an, as an asset class. This has also been the experience of the folks at Coinmetrics that I'm very close to. Uh, you know, they're noticing, uh, you know, traditional institutions that aren't publicly known to have any allocation or engagement with cryptocurrency at all. They're starting to ask about the data. They're trying to get smart about uh, how to value Bitcoin or at least what the maybe the drivers of its price are or what the usage of the network is uh, and, and other kind of top uh, cryptocurrencies. So I definitely have noticed a bit of a shift. I think, you know, in 2017, Institutions were, for the most part, were very unwilling to engage. There was the big issue with custody. Market structure wasn't fully understood, and you know there are still a lot of regulatory questions and a lot of a lot of assets to be careful about. Of course, yeah, and and I mean we actually haven't seen much of that uncertainty resolved because uh, mm -hmm. the SEC has been really standoffish uh, in terms of doing anything about uh, the ICOs. A few of those boxes have been checked in the last couple of years. And uh, I, I think also in 2017, there was a perception that, it, you know, a correct perception that it was a heavily retail driven market and no one really wants to be, you know, buying the perceived top, uh, you know, in a, in a market that's very retail driven. Uh, and I think that's changed as well. So there's kind of a growing awareness. You know, I, I think a lot of the, um, what the Wall Street institutions are doing these days is is, you know, a, a lot more definitive in terms of acknowledging that cryptocurrencies are real and, and here to stay. I also think Libra's announcement kind of moved the needle a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, people really take Facebook seriously. And, you know, Facebook, for all their flaws, were very earnest in their desire to create a new unit of account, you know, a new non-state money, even if it, you know, looks to be rather centralized and, and problematic in some ways. You know, the fact that they had been messaging that they would be piggybacking on the infrastructure, which has been built for cryptocurrencies over the last decade, that kind of validates, you know, what we've been doing here uh, to some degree, mm -hmm. uh, even if, you know, it's a, it's a corporation that I'm not a huge fan of, uh, which is Facebook.
Mm-hmm. But it, it is certainly ionized uh, or has the potential to ionize a, a huge swath of the global population into the Bitcoin world. So I think that that definitely got a lot of people uh, paying attention. Totally. Yeah, I think the jury's still out on on whether Libra would be a net good or not if it launched. If if there were some provisions to preserve user privacy, it could well be a net good. I know that's going to be a bit of a controversial opinion, mm-hmm. but you know, if given the choice to hold your savings in like, you know, the Indian rupee or the Nigerian naira or you know a uh, mostly dollar backed Libra basket, which undoubtedly pres- would preserve purchasing power better, a lot of people would choose the latter. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the effective outcome of that would be to kind of dollarize. Uh, a lot of these developing world countries, which is actually sort of hostile to the the local governments and the local currencies. So that's another reason why I'm skeptical Libra would actually launch. But it, it's always nice to have another option, you know, whether that's a, a, a somewhat permission coin like Libra or, you know, a preferable, in my view, something like Bitcoin. But certainly it, it goes back to what you mentioned at the very beginning about the, the, the private money sort of re-entering the scene and becoming the norm again. I mean, isn't that what it's all about? Isn't it about that maybe this power of minting money and borrowing and, and all that, maybe it's inappropriate in general, which is what they were talking about back in 1912 when the Fed was set up anyway. I mean, those were the conversations they were having then. This power should not be given to politicians who can't see past their re-election. Yeah. You know, whether the algorithm is, you know, maybe one day Facebook would use their vast trove of data to pick some sort of non-discretionary uh, algorithm for managing the money supply, which would be interesting. Or maybe we'll just have the very simple algorithm, which is Bitcoin's, you know, kind of um, asymptotic uh, issuance, which eventually ends. The constant there is the ending of monetary discretion, which a lot of people mm-hmm. have identified as this uh, kind of ironically pro-cyclical force, uh, even mm-hmm. though it's intended to manage the kind of boom bust cycle of recessions, I think in practice, it's done the opposite. And it's it's made them, uh, it, you know, more intense and more destructive. So, you know, I, a lot of Bitcoiners think absolutely no discretion whatsoever. And uh, capped issuance is the way maybe there'll be another algorithm, which emerges, which is more popular. But, you know, it's, it's, cheering to me that uh, for the first time in a long time, uh, normal folks, all they need is an internet connection and they can, uh, they can, you know, fully or partially exit their, their local uh, currency system. So Nick, we're coming to the end in our last question of this interesting conversation. And you're a data guy. You're known in the industry as a data guy. The service that you provide the industry with coin metrics, the free downloads, which I use regularly, and the the more elaborate stuff, which uh, uh, here at Coindesk we've piped into a long time ago because it is top, top quality. But you're also known for coming up with all these great new uh, ways of understanding uh, Bitcoin's behavior on a, from a trading perspective. So what's one chart or trend that you're really looking at right now? that really has your your attention other than the ones that you're creating yourself or i suppose you can actually come up with and, and mention one of your own uh, if you, if you, if you don't mind you know one thing i've been paying a lot of attention to lately would be this notion of uh, realized uh, capitalization uh, which mm. was devised as kind of an alternative to market capitalization uh, what you do is you take the price at which uh, each unit of bitcoin or you know any cryptocurrency of your choice uh, last changed hands and you add all those up 
Uh, so instead of pricing all of the supply at current market price, you actually look and determine where each last Bitcoin actually traded uh, and settled on the ledger and you add it all up. And so you get a, actually most of the time it's a much more conservative view of mm -hmm. market cap. And you know the interesting thing is that realized cap in Bitcoin just passed a hundred billion dollars, whereas market cap is somewhere like 150, 160 billion, I haven't checked. And it's actually at an all time high. And you know compared with market cap, which is well below its all time high, and one way to, that I think about realized cap is that it measures, roughly speaking, the average cost basis of your of your average holder. Yeah. It almost sounds like a blend of days destroyed and hodl waves. Like you're getting the both of the good effects of those metrics and and sort of seeing it uh, blended together. Yeah, the intuition is kind of similar for sure. Which is why don't we you know develop a measure of economic significance, which is. Uh, in at least in part indexed to the actual usage of the ledger, which is transparent. And a lot of people say that, you know, the transparency of Bitcoin is this bug uh, and it's terrible. And uh, I mean, that, you know, is true when it comes to individual privacy, for sure. But uh, it's also a feature when it comes to evaluating the economic nature of these things. And in the case of realized cap, it allows us to determine with a good degree of precision where the market in the aggregate actually bought into their current positions. So it's pretty fascinating to watch. And what it shows to me is that for the most part, Bitcoin holders are actually in profit because very little Bitcoin changed hands at those uh, really extreme uh, heights back in uh, 2017. Mm -hmm. uh, and for the most part, your average holder obtained their positions uh, at a lower threshold. Fascinating stuff, Nick, and looking forward to you joining us in November in New York City for Consensus Invest, where you'll be speaking uh, about more data. That's right. Looking forward to it as well. Thanks for having me on. Thanks a ton. Enjoyed this episode? I'd like to personally invite you to come to Invest New York in November. The event features not only the speaker you just heard, but an array of other amazing thinkers. Visit coindesk.com and click events or simply follow the link in the description. Thanks for listening and see you in New York City.